Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Her Majesty's Tech Podcast, working title. My name is Pascal and socially distant from me is Emil in his loft. How are you doing, Emil? I'm doing well. I don't mean this as an empty platitude. How are you? No, no, this is good. I'm, uh, I've been in my flat, left the door to throw away trash twice in two weeks. <laughs> That's basically it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I've been less strict about this until we have something like shelter in place. I still go to the grocery store. Even though yesterday I just went to market instead because my grocery store is just so overcrowded all of the time that it's nearly impossible not to bump shoulders with people, which at the moment makes me quite uncomfortable. And going to an open air market instead where all the vendors are also usually wearing masks and disinfecting their hands every single time they have an interaction seems way more safe than this actually. Yeah, there's no reason not to go outside to be honest. Like if you go outside out for itself like, is fine, yeah. Right. If you go out for like a walk, it's fine. Maybe don't go to like Oxford Street, but right. But you know, anywhere else, I think it's pretty fine. So I don't know. I just haven't I've just had a lot of other stuff on my mind, obviously. Everybody does. But then yeah. uh then like been doing work. But I'll probably take like an hour tomorrow maybe and go on a bike ride or something like that. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I think it's also a good time to just acknowledge how incredibly privileged we are that we can actually just stay at home, do our work, still have food, have access to basically everything we need to survive quite comfortably, and how grateful I am for all the work that people on the front line do, the health workers, but also everybody else the who keep things running, that we have internet connectivity here, electricity yeah, I was talking to um, the guy who delivered our cotter for us, what, two, three oh, yeah. days ago. And I was like, so, like, how are you and how are things? And like, just wondering how he was doing. And I was like, yep, he's like, I've never worked this much ever. People are going crazy. Right. Yeah, I, I made my first delivery order. So I am now officially a millennial. I'm not even sure how, how it happened that I never did this before. But I felt like this is now the only way to actually support Wait, some restaurants in the area. Nothing. I either do my own shit or I go to the restaurant. <laughs> Wait, but, you've never done like delivery before? Uh, I think I may have had an order at someone else's place, but no, actually not to mine. That is pretty crazy. I use Deliveroo and Uber Eats so much. I mean, I'm sure others use it a lot more than me. But <laughs> I would say if you'd asked me two months ago or whatever, back in pre-virus days, I was doing like one a week. Mm -hmm. And it's usually like I'm coming home late from work, girlfriend's home late from work. It's like I don't really feel like cooking for an hour and I'm hungry. Right. Yeah, I normally have some stuff prepared so that it doesn't really take me longer than maybe five minutes I mean, to throw something together. To be honest, I use delivery a lot less now because I'm at home and I'll be like, uh, I want to take a break from work and I might as well just like cook food while I'm taking a break. Yeah. Two things I found really surprising or interesting, let's say. One is they, well, I don't have a good overview of what the delivery page normally looks like, but the number one filter right now when you go to the page is the hygiene rating. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is not what is there by default, but right now it does actually make a lot of sense to filter by this. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think it always makes sense, but what does the hygiene rating actually mean? Because like, some of the shops on Deliveroo are like, I've walked past like a really sketchy, like 
chicken shop and on delivery it's like 4.5 and hygiene <laughs> it's like i've walked past that place like if that 4.5 i don't i don't want to know oh, what 3.5 is that that reminds me there was a youtube channel they set up basically a yes, cloud, cloud kitchen you saw this yeah so it's just a fake delivery shop they spent a lot of time just shooting nice looking photos but hit airpods for instance in some of the prepared meals that they have but essentially they were just selling microwave food from tesco and had some well nice product shots for all of them but yeah it's interesting i can add this to the show notes but well to the second point the delivery was lightning fast i think from clicking the order button to the delivery it took about 15 minutes this is how long you normally wait in the well i ordered from not too far away from here but no but like food takes a while to prepare like what did you order a pad thai for my girlfriend and i had some vegan potentially something that's like pre-prepared potentially yeah but I, I do wonder if this has to do with the restaurants having zero foot traffic now by by default, or if this is yeah. But now else. they now they have to have zero foot traffic, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Since like but, since two days ago, or is it like since yesterday midnight since or something like that. Fri- yeah, Friday, right, yeah, Friday, Friday night, yeah. Um. Yeah. So the main reason I did this was basically, hey, let's support some restaurants. So when this is all over, hopefully some of them will still be around. Because this is now yeah. literally the only way for them to make any money at all. Hopefully a lot of them outlast. But the thing is, like, it's I'm pretty like optimistic in general. Like, please please share. Please share your optimism. I need some of that. I'm optimistic that we won't lose a bunch of small businesses or rather i think we will lose a lot of small businesses but and that's that's like that sucks for those people who've struggled to like create those small businesses and for the people they employ but there's a lot of people who are i think pessimistic around like oh this will just like entrench the big companies more it's like yeah i think for like a short amount of time it will but it's so easy nowadays to start start a small business whatever you do so once this is all over which i'm not optimistic will happen very soon but once it is all over i think we'll see a surge in, in new businesses created but you say that it's really easy to start a business isn't that based on the assumption that it's also easy to get money if we enter yes. a depression, which looks more and more likely, then access to money is going to be a lot harder than it was in the past. Yeah, definitely. But there's, I don't know, I'm still optimistic given like we've seen in the past, say, 10 years since the since last big recession, really, we've seen a lot of businesses that help small businesses with like capital formation and so forth, like Stripe, for example, that can mm-hmm. give like loans to small businesses based on like actual data versus banks right. who don't. And Stripe isn't the only company doing this, but th- there's a lot of others as well. And I think that just that enables a lot more cap- like uh, businesses, small businesses to uh, yeah. ha- get some cash. I've also seen some really amazing efforts by 
some of the large players. So I'm sure you've seen like Facebook having this $100 million fund for small businesses. Another one I saw is from Netflix. They've basically done the same. It's also $100 million. It's a fund, but it's for supporting creative industries. And the the long tail there is just absolutely massive. Think of all the drivers, all the staff that exists on movie productions, which have nothing to do now. Basically, Hollywood is shut down yeah. and in all the other places. So just keeping the industry alive, because obviously Netflix also benefits from this. If they have nowhere to put their billions uh, of dollars, the they've got... Like- it's the same thing as Facebook benefit, like a huge portion of their like ad revenues for small businesses. So they obviously want those small businesses to continue. And I mean, so I mean, I'm not saying that that's that's a bad thing that they do it because they gain from it. It's great sure. that like both sides gain from it. That's a great thing. Um, but I'm also optimistic around like the new kind of um, kind of business models that will come out. Uh, every recession brings with it a lot of innovation in business models and kind of capital formation um i mean the kind of the last recession brought us airbnb uber and those kinds of companies as well as uh things like uh square stripe and those kind of companies and there's there's always this kind of crunch to figure out new business models and new ways to raise capital when there's very little capital and the um i guess the incumbent uh, platforms for raising capital don't want to give you capital. Uh, there's kind of this crunch for like finding out new ways to do things. And that always leads to a lot of interesting innovation. So it's like, yes, this whole situation sucks, but I do think we'll, we'll come out stronger than ever as we do in every recession. I appreciate your optimism. Yeah, I find it really hard to see a silver lining here at the moment especially because we're only getting started and especially when i look at countries without any safety net whatsoever like the us effectively where i see the claims for unemployment just skyrocketing oh, yeah. to like, levels that have never been seen wrong. before like, think, don't get me wrong like i think things are going to go like to super shit in a lot of places and for a lot of people and people are going to have it really tough for the next couple of years. Yeah, but uh, I see you're looking at like the the end state where we might end up. And like if we look like if we look ten years from now, I think we'll look back at yeah, this time sucked. Especially the 2008 recession sucked. Yeah, it was super hard for a lot of people, but we came out of it with a ton of innovative new business model companies just like a lot of great things came out of it i I won't make the call on if it was worth it or not i'll leave that to Hmm. somebody else but there there's usually really good things that come out again like i'm not going to say it's worth it i can't say that but but there are good things that come out of these sorts of things yeah, the thing that really gives me pause at the moment are the growth projections. So Goldman Sachs updated their growth forecast from last week, which was Q1, 0% growth, Q2, minus 5%, to Q1, minus 6, Q2, minus 20 fucking 4. And to put this in context, when you're talking about the recession in 2008, the worldwide GDP throughout this period from 2008 to 2009 fell by 1%. The Great yeah, Depression but, I mean, between 1929... Hold on, just, just, just to finish the context here. So for the Great Depression, which was between um, 1929 and 1932, the worldwide GDP fell by 15. So this is... It, 
if those projections are anywhere close to reality, we are really in uncharted territory here. Yeah, but I would say, I don't know a lot about this. First of all, I would say, didn't Goldman value WeWork at like 100 billion as well? Like, <laughs> some of their projections are off. It's, that's just the sure. truth. Uh, and then there's there's a difference between like, yeah, like quarterly growth going way down and then like looking at those historic things or like the growth over more like not one quarter, but over like a year or two. I don't know, but looking at it, they might have had one quarter that was that bad as yeah. well. And of course, everybody is extrapolating from very little data right now. This is literally within weeks that the forecast changed. So they could yeah. have not have more than seven days of data to base these projections on. So Q3 could be a complete bounce back because we find a antiviral treatment which also works in some sort of preemptive way. Who the fuck knows? And right now businesses can still turn around. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So I don't want to be too much of a doomsayer here, but we should definitely be prepared for things to take a really ugly swing. Oh, yeah, like, I'm prepared for the next couple of years being shitty. <laughs> I'm very much not prepared for this, but shall we talk about something more positive? So you sure. recently wrote a blog post about keyboard accessibility and accessibility in general for your Visly app. Can you give us all a quick overview about what this was about? Yeah, so I actually wrote two blog posts recently. One was around kind of the usage of uh, no-code tools in, for like us as developers. And the second was keyboard accessibility. Um, but yeah, around keyboard accessibility, uh, it's really just about kind of um, viewing it in a different perspective. I think for the last couple of years, a ton of people have talked about accessibility being so important because there's uh, a subset of users that, for whom a lot of apps are basically useless because they have some disability or in some way something makes them not be able to use apps like everybody else. And that's a really, I guess, I mean, it's a really good reason to make your apps accessible. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I think we, we need other reasons. And Secondly, I think there are other reasons. So why I think we need other reasons is like the market for people who don't need an accessible product is very large. So if you're a startup, you're creating a new product, you really don't need to care about people who have um, like accessibility concerns that make them not be able to use apps. Like from a purely like market point of view, you don't really need to care about them. You usually have bigger problems like I mean, uh, will even the other people who don't require any of those like specially designed accessible services, will they even use your product? Mm -hmm. Building a startup for myself now, like th that's, that's a real concern. Like, no, but to quickly flip this around, it is a major concern for really large companies whose total addressable audience might be the entire world. And I'm not going to name anybody here, but there is a real business incentive. If you think about how many people suffer from some sort of accessibility requiring disability 
then you might be somewhere like, so, sorry, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but maybe it's 10%. That might not be enough for a smart startup with very limited resources to go after them. But ignoring 10% of your market, if you're talking billions of people, it would be insane to forget about right. them. Right. So with this, like, I kind of wanted to take the take in the blog post that, like, building accessible services for those with disabilities is, it's great, but for a lot of companies, it's just not really worth it, perhaps. However, it will be worth it once you're big. But mm -hmm. it's like a lot of things, like, should you refactor this piece of code? It's like, oh, it's not worth it now, but it will be worth it later. But if you can make it worth it now, it means you don't have to spend like a huge amount of time redesigning your app later to kind of cater to these people. Right. So how do you find the balance for your startup? Yeah, so I mean, I wrote this blog post in the approach of, hey, don't make your app keyboard accessible for those with disabilities. Make a keyboard accessible for kind of the pro users because those you definitely want. You want the people who are like really, really going to use your app to its fullest extent and get really, really good at using your app. You want these And then also get really excited that, about it. And yes, become these are the, also the people products. that end up being advocates for your product on right. Twitter or GitHub or whatever. So you really, really want these people. And the thing is, making an app keyboard accessible for the prosumer, so to speak, and for the uh, people with disabilities is actually not too different. In the end, you need to handle things like tab navigation properly. You need to handle using your keyboard not having to go and point and click to everything because a lot of these pros they to move quickly enough you kind of don't want to go between keyboard and mouse all the time and this is kind of the approach i was advocating for in the blog post like yes you're a startup yes the the market for like making things like perfect in your app for those with disabilities might not seem large i mean it will be in the future but it might not seem large today but you really, really want these pros who are going to love your product and advocate for your product. So think yep. of keyboard accessibility as building for them. And that's kind of how we've thought about it at Visly. We, I mean, in the end, we're building a developer tool. And while it is uh, a visual programming environment, it's still a programming environment. And that means we kind of want to make you feel as productive as when you're writing code. And for some people, not everybody, but for some people, that means kind of you're just like on your home row of your keyboard and just tapping away and, and coding, basically. And uh, we wanted to make it so that even though Visly is a visual development tool, it can feel like you're coding uh, while still getting all the benefits from a visual programming tool. And we've done this by well, making everything keyboard accessible through various, various means. Yeah, and one example that you mentioned there really resonated with me because for Visly, you've built a ton of custom components that effectively replace things that might be built into the browser with accessibility built in. So stuff like sliders or button rows, the kind of stuff that you normally can tap through, use your arrow keys to adjust the values. And in many web apps that use something that clearly is custom, you can no longer use them. And I think... Even Again, this is the pro user aspect. I like using my keyboard for these kind of things. And it infuriates me when people effectively deliberately break this just to make it look a bit sleeker. I mean, we've also noticed things like you mentioned sliders being able to adjust the values with your error keys. This is actually something that's not in the built-in HTML slider input. It's not. Oh, wow. No. 
And we're like, so we're in a way making these built-in components more accessible than <laughs> they were in the built-in web browser. Like there is obviously some way to adjust a slider through your keyboard in HTML input. I, to be honest, don't know what it is. Maybe you press a number. I'm not really sure. But like the keyboard, like the the keys left and right for like a horizontal slider don't work where obviously they should. So they do work in Visly. And just thinking about those things, like, again, like we are thinking about it from a developer pro user perspective. These things make it uh, super well, uh, good for like people who are like motion impaired as well. But that that is not our primary persona i guess we're we're designing this for however once we like go down and actually like optimize for uh those people it'll be so much simpler because everything is already keyboard bound exactly another thing you bring up there is how you use animation so i think in general when people think about accessibility and animation they actually my natural inclination would be animation is generally counterproductive when it comes to this. In iOS, you even have this option for reduced motion because some people react negatively to this. How do you use this to enhance the experience? Well, it's it's more of a way to show the user what's happening. So the problem with a lot of keyboard shortcuts and a lot of apps is you press a keyboard shortcut. Sometimes you even press the keyboard shortcut accidentally, not knowing it would do anything. And something happens like you clearly see something changed but you have no idea what happened because often with keyboard shortcuts things just like happen instantaneously when you press the the uh, shortcut um, but yeah. we instead put a lot of thought into let's show the user with the help of animation what we're changing uh, so that if they accidentally press the keyboard shortcut or press it fully knowingly they'll kind of see oh okay so this thing is moving there this menu is opening from there it becomes very obvious what that keyboard shortcut did and doesn't just like randomly change the ui oh, they have man. No idea what happened you know what i think of when you bring up this example being in vim and accidentally having yes. caps lock pressed then you enter something and what the fuck just happened i have no idea what state my application is in now and nobody just quit without saving, re-enter, and do whatever I did before. Yeah, but this happens in, like, Photoshop and a bunch of things as well. Like, you press a key, and it's, like, some menu thing pop over pops up, and, like, your, your like, uh, design inverts a color, and you're like, uh, what happened? You know what? This will almost definitely happen to me in Audition as I edit this episode, but I won't do the pre- pre-post-production step here in Descript, which is another really nicely designed desktop application that does use very similar patterns as, as you've described here. They also have keyboard shortcuts for a lot of things and then use animations to show you what your what the action you've just performed actually did. Yeah, so we kind of see it as a way, like we love interfaces that are kind of physical in a way. You like drag and drop something, you move something from one place to another. Yeah, in, in a way, like uh, <laughs> where where you feel like you're manipulating the canvas, and th that's that's great. However, those can sometimes get a bit slow, so that's why you do want keyboard shortcuts. But the thing is, when you have this manipulation-based interface, it's very obvious what's happening. You're dragging something from this place to this place, and it's it's very obvious what you're doing. 
But yeah. if you use a keyboard shortcut for the same thing, you kind of have to show the user, oh, this keyboard shortcut, that did the same thing. So then you want to, if there's a keyboard shortcut for moving something, for example, obviously it's rearranging a layer, for example, you want to show that, hey, we're moving this layer to this new location and you want to do that animation. Um, so then they kind of see that, ah, okay, that's the same thing as if I took my mouse, held in on that layer and moved it there. And it's the exact same thing. Yeah. I would imagine this also just generally helps with the design of interactions because you then have a clearly established pattern that everything follows. When you build something new, you always have to have this mental model in your head of what physical action does this actually perform. And without that particular limitation, I think it's way easier to create confusing workflows that don't really make sense to anybody but the person who did designed them. Yeah, exactly. So we try to put as much hints like that into our keyboard navigation as possible. And this we also do this for like when you use a keyboard shortcut to like change a color or uh, update a text style or whatever. We kind of we focus the input that you would have clicked on manually and we like pop up a drop down from that where you can choose whatever option you want. And it really is just a shortcut for whatever you would do with your mouse. So it's not like this totally separate thing. It's it's really just a shortcut for what you would do with your mouse. And this right. means like if if you're been like starting to use the product with your mouse, you kind of feel at home because you understand, oh, this is just like a shortcut for what I already did and it's the exact same thing. Great. And you feel like very much at home. In Android Studio or IntelliJ, there is an extension or a plugin. I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's a really, really annoying <laughs> extension that basically nags you after a certain threshold of interactions with a certain UI element with a mouse, it will tell you, hey, do you want to assign this to your keyboard action instead or remind you of the keyboard action that you can use to do the same thing? So very purposefully hate forcing this. you. <laughs> I found it quite useful in the beginning, but then there are certain actions which are so niche. But over the course of the day, I still might click on them five times that I just turned it off. But in the beginning, when you just kind of want, want to become familiar with the core interaction concepts, uh, it's, it was actually quite helpful. Yeah, like even in apps that are like heavily like keyboard bound. So like I use Superhuman for email, for example. Yes. It's, I use keyboard shortcuts a ton and I fly through the app, but I still like click on things from time to time um, mm -hmm. because sometimes that's just faster. Especially like if I have a list of uh, what I, I like, this list fits... I don't know, say 30 emails. It's quicker for me just to click on the email on the bottom and then press my down key 30 times and then clicking enter. Like, I'll just use my trackpad and click on it. And sure. I use a mix of, like, keyboard shortcuts and and mouse. And I'm quite happy with that. Like, I use keyboard shortcuts for the, like, the top five, ten things. And that's, like, that you don't need to use your keyboard for everything now now we in Visley, we want to enable you to do exactly everything for the keyboard and we really try to do that but but i personally i use a mix i like that let's talk about another thing that you took from superhuman and a lot of other apps which is quick actions so what are they and how are they useful this is a quick menu kind of i would say a lazy way to implement keyboard navigation 
but it, it's both lazy and and really good at the same time. So instead of like figuring out, oh, what like random keyboard shortcut am I going to do for this obscure feature? Like, oh, command shift option control function R G. Like, no, like why? Uh, you just kind of make everything by default accessible through the keyboard via one keyboard shortcut that pops up kind of a menu that you can then filter with your keyboard. So you can press command K to open up the menu, then type in something like uh, change text color in Visly. Press enter. Yeah. And that brings you to the change text color keyboard option. Now we don't actually have a in Visly, we don't have a keyboard shortcut for changing the text color. I mean, we might add it in the future, but it's still keyboard accessible because it has a binding in the quick actions menu through command K. And mm-hmm. this is where you can add like totally obscure things that like you really don't want a keyboard shortcut for because it would be like, it would give you carpal tunnel just like doing it once. <laughs> so you just like add it to this filter list and then uh, it's keyboard accessible, even though it doesn't have a keyboard shortcut. And this is also a great way to also inform the user of keyboard commands because like when you filter in the list, like it'll show the keyboard shortcut next to it. So yeah. like next time you're like, oh, okay, I don't need a like command K search for it. I can just pass this keyboard shortcut. I might be wrong about this, but my feeling is that the first kind of mainstream product that popularized this was Atom, because it was such a headline feature there where you pressed Command P and the list of all the available actions of the editor and all the plugins was available. This goes, there this goes back so much. I, I, I know that. that it goes further back. We have it in the help menu and OS 10, which is actually one of the few things that I really appreciate about macOS that you can filter through all the menu items that are available. And IntelliJ has also had this yes. for as long as I can remember. And then there's like double shift. apps like alfred uh, spotlight whatever are very similar in a way as well sure but they are application spanning and even though the inspiration was clearly taken from them i think once people saw this in an editor and as an alternative to memorizing everything i would argue sublime was before adam adam ripped it from sublime okay that might absolutely be true i've never actually used sublime Oh, yeah. So like, Sublime had this, and Adam just, like, ripped it. Right. Like, okay. great. Do it. Uh, but Sublime... And Sublime probably took it from another editor, TBH. But, like, Sublime uh, definitely had this before Adam. And this was, like, a big feature of Adam, but, like, they, it, it was the same shortcut as it was in Sublime. Let's all just be grateful for the fact that there is no software patent on this or none that is enforced by anybody. I mean, at there the probably is one. T- so, like. That's why I say enforced. I think we're all right. better for having this in as many apps as possible. <laughs> yeah, so I really like it. A ton of apps are now adopting it. Thing is, it's super useful in the beginning as you learn the shortcuts. I use it less and less over time because, like, it teaches you the shortcuts. So it's a great yeah. way to onboard people. And then I use it sometimes still for obscure things that, or like things that don't have a keyboard shortcut, but I still want to do with my keyboard. But it's a great like way to onboard people to keyboard shortcuts. Makes sense. Is there anything else in your blog post, your approach to keyboard accessible design that you want to mention? I mean, I would say the big thing with anything is it's like, if it's super important, it should be embedded in your culture. And this is something that we focus a lot on. Like, we treat something that's not keyboard accessible as 
it's a bug and the UI doesn't work. That makes but sense, yeah. UI should be accessible through the keyboard and the mouse. And if it isn't, then the UI doesn't work. And that is treated as a high-priority bug. If it's not treated as a bug, if it's treated as like feature improvement, then, yeah, it becomes a low-priority feature. Whereas if it's a bug, it's automatically high-priority and should be fixed right away. And I think... I think that just like making it part of the culture is the most important thing because that means any new feature that's implemented, people take it for granted that obviously like same as I add an on-click listener, I should be adding a, a quick action for this. Yeah, I really like this approach. And we've actually like, we've obviously also like developed internal libraries to make this easy. So it's super easy in any component you build to add an on-click listener, but you can also add a quick action that just triggers the same event and then Mm -hmm. it automatically populates in the quick action menu and like you don't need to do anything it's one line of code and your component is now uh keyboard accessible nice which is really cool okay and if people want to learn more about this and maybe even see some visual examples i'll leave a link to the blog post in the show notes to wrap things up emil can you give us some ideas of what to do with our lives at the moment as we are all self-isolating what have you been doing to keep your mind busy apart from writing blog posts work and i guess podcasting i've been listening to a lot of podcasts i definitely encourage everybody to listen to a lot of podcasts especially the ones that i'm in (laughs) other than that i've been playing video games i started playing some minecraft that's fun also animal crossing just came out what was that two days ago three days ago yeah i don't know i I saw my twitter feed just turning from COVID 19 twitter into animal crossing twitter which was a really nice change to be honest yeah so i'm playing playing minecraft playing animal crossing i uh ordered an ipad uh so i'm buying online shopping i guess (laughs) (laughs) um trying to like i don't know i always think it's fun I'm very much a product creator, so I always think it's fun to just like sit down and sketch out some product ideas, even though I'm not mm. going to build them right away. Uh, so I do a lot of that, just like, yeah, sketch out fun product ideas so that I might or may or may not start building. I mean, our team has always been remote, but now we're more remote than ever, I guess. Uh, now yeah. I don't even sit in an office with uh, my coworker here in London. So... Either it comes up a lot of ideas from me and from the rest of the team about kind of how to make that remote work more productive, more effective. So um, I'm excited to kind of build out some uh, maybe solutions in that space as well. Yeah. One recommendation from my side, I've been playing a game that's not really a co-op game at all but it works quite well just as couch co-op where you pass a controller left and right and that's baba is you have you heard about this one no very pixelated little game with i don't even know how many levels the core concept is you control you usually control a little creature called baba that is you so you control it and then on the screen you see in words the rules for the given level this can be something like wall is stop rock is push which means you can't go through walls and the rock which may exist in the level is pushable but you can also push all of these rules and rearrange them and you could make wall is push and rock is stop and then suddenly you can just move the wall around and normally there is a winning condition which is something like flag is win and your goal then is to reach the flag 
the level is basically built on the knowledge that you accumulate and it's really really well designed so just by explaining it doesn't explain you anything but you figure it out over time you get more familiar with how the system really works and some things are just absolutely mind-blowing in the way they are created so you can just kind of sit together and hmm, how, how about we we become the flag make baba win and then we run into it and after a while you can figure it out it's actually a lot of fun it seems like and a very like software engineering game. It is, but it also doesn't really require anybody to be particularly good at video games because it's effectively just logic puzzles that you solve together. And we've been so playing this. So, what is it for? Like, is it online or is this Switch? I... Or... So, I played it on my MacBook. Effectively, I believe there is a Switch version, which actually sounds like the perfect game for it because a level doesn't really take you longer than five minutes maybe unless you get stuck which may or may, may not have happened to me but i've been playing it through a steam link i believe there are some apps for tvs and uh, other solutions now but i actually got one of these little streaming boxes that valve the company was shipping not too long ago but i think they've stopped they're still supporting them and yesterday when i turned it back on after two weeks maybe i still got a bunch of new software updates so they still seem to be at least like maintaining it quite actively and that effectively just means it streams from your PC, your Mac, whatever runs Steam on, to TV. You can connect a controller, even a PS4 controller by Bluetooth to it. And then I've you can never just play it on the couch. This. I just had it sitting around for a couple years, maybe. <laughs> now I'm using it for the first time. It's actually a really cool product. It just works in the way it's, it's supposed to. Sweet, yeah. Add a link to that in the show notes. I'm, I yeah, people can't buy the hardware anymore, but to there spell are for it. But <laughs> <laughs> I think there are Android apps for it, so you can definitely do the same thing on your phone, and it's available for Android TV. There was a controversy with Apple TV where I think they didn't allow this because effectively it grants you access to a separate marketplace, which is Steam, which is a ridiculous justification for their ban but well it's apple yeah but like they've done this with other apps as well like i think like i've he i've heard things about like messenger as well like their messenger bots like it like one design looked too yeah. much like an app store so they had like redesigned it to like look less like an app store or something like that and i've heard this over like a ton of companies so it's not anything facebook specific or yeah. steam specific it's just like if you make it look anything like a store like a vir for virtual goods that is it's it's no well you can definitely buy and install things through this thing but it is while streaming you can literally see the click events happening on the different machine as you're using the app so pretending that this amounts to a market store is pretty far-fetched in my opinion but well it's apple it's apple we'll see it'll be interesting what happens with all of that like apple is giving in more and more to like allow for this kind of openness as like regulators in europe are putting some pressure on them yes so I'm, they're getting I mean, attacked from two sides right now so one is regulators and the others is consumers and companies that have just enough mind share that they can get away with just ignoring the apple store like netflix who just said no yeah. we're just not going to sell subscription and giving you a 30 percent cut everybody who wants to use this will do it through their browser on their own and we're not even going to explain it because we're big enough and can just do it yeah and it's it feels like i mean at this point like the big cash cow for like apple is like game and app purchases 
And I feel like that's not what they want. So It's I feel definitely like... not where they want to be because the most revenue-generating games are also the shittiest ones that are just milking whales. I, I, I don't think this metaphor works at all. But yeah, are really exploitative of their user base, which is not really something Apple so usually like, stands I, for. I, I would assume Apple's like thinking through this but it's apple so it's going to take a couple years until anything changes i mean it's a big company it's like and there's so many apis in place and so like there's just like they need they need to think about the status quo a lot so like it'll take a while to solve but i I mean there's rumors that they're allowing default apps now or will be allowed like changing default apps that like opens up a lot yes and uh yeah like i think they need to rethink the store policy and it's just stupid not allowing this this is one of the main reasons why i can't be bothered to use an iDevice right now i want to be able to change my default apps and if i could maybe i would actually use it again yeah like for me it's not a huge issue in practice i'm looking forward to being able to but it's like it's really not a huge deal in practice for me i know it is for others but for me it's like it generally works well, except I can't press on mail to links because it opens the wrong app. But like, yeah. ugh, exactly. fine. I still find it really annoying, especially when you know how it works on Android. And even if you have multiple apps, like I use Outlook for work stuff, I use Gmail as my personal thing, and I c- can still click on the links and then choose from a menu if I don't have the Oh yeah, it works app. really well on Android, and Android has gone that right. Um, yeah. I still think the App Store issue is bigger than than this and i don't know how to solve it like obviously they could say oh we're taking a smaller cut but does that solve the core issue yeah probably not it's like definitely for subscriptions maybe but let's figure this out in the future for now this has been another episode of her majesty's tech podcast working title my name is pascal and you can follow me on twitter under at passy that's p-a-s-s-y and I'm Emil. You can follow me at, at Emil Showlander. That is complex to spell, but go to visly.app instead to follow me. <laughs> we'll add a link to both your Twitter handle and visly.app to the show notes. And you can also follow our combined Twitter account at HMTPod. I think that's yes. right. HMTPod or HMTPod, <laughs> however you'd like to pronounce it. Exactly. And. Maybe we will shorten the gaps between the episodes now that we don't really have much else to do, but to sit in our corresponding flats here and record some stuff. And we do have another blog post to talk yeah, about. Yeah, also, I just like hanging out. Me too. Hopefully by next time I'll have my new iPad and maybe we can do some special episode of developer, developer iPad. I wanted to try to get my iPad into developer mode. Maybe we can figure that out. Oh, yeah. All right, dude. Talk to you soon. See ya. Ah, all right. Um, I saw yesterday on the NHS webpage where they listed the common or the three most common surfaces that you should wipe down. It's doorknobs, phones. Guess what number three is? Yeah, I saw your tweet about this. I loved it. (laughs) Kettles. (laughs) Good stuff.